It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Well. Oh, we're starting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like we already... Oh, actually, I will say one thing that came up for me as soon as you started talking, James. Did people ever tell you that your voice is kind of like Keanu Reeves? (laughs) It's so funny you say that because, first of all, I love Keanu. Have you ever worked with him? No, I have not, but uh, yet that you know there was a yet, but you know there was that movie on Netflix called yes. "Always Be My Maybe." Yes, right. Yeah. So, so we had to do some voiceover work on that, right? And uh, wait, so, were you in that? No, I wasn't in it. I read for it. I read for the boyfriend role. Oh, which, okay. But you do this thing called looping or ADR, right? So it's like additional dialogue replacement, whatever. There's a part where the Ke- uh, Keanu's in in the restaurant, that crazy weird restaurant, right? And I had to like dub his voice, and so. Well, they were like, who, who could do it? Well, like, I, I was like the closest one. So, you know, so, so anyway, so we were just playing around. So I was like, you know, like doing the whoa and, and just anyway. So so is that the first time somebody has, has thought that? Did you think that at all, Jason? Or No, but now that now it's that so I've funny, now that you pointed it out. And of course, now that you did ADR for him, it's like, duh. Well, I've never. So I don't know if I've heard that before, but it's funny that you said that. I don't know why. It just It just came up for me as you were talking. So. You have a great voice. Oh, thank you. And a great smile. That's what I noticed as soon as you walked in today. You just have one of those smiles that lights up the room. It's so interesting how some people have that effect, right? Like just a A natural, yeah, Yeah. just a natural shining. I'll take it. What is that it factor? And like, I remember hearing about this years ago in music when I think I was reading a, a biography about music producers and like classic albums and things like that. And I think it was actually Clive Davis, the one of the greatest music producers of all time. And shout out to Mitch Davis, his, his son, son. Amazing creator of Illuminations Candles. Yes, shout out who to was Mitch. a supporter of our launch party. He had his, his little candles out in display. Oh, They're amazing yeah, yeah, candles. The ones... Yeah. Okay. And they're called Illumination Candles? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Made with soy wax, I Correct. believe. Oh, and they cool. smell incredible. They actually last a really long time too, by the oh, way. Oh, this is great because <laughs> we had to get rid of all the candles in our house because uh, it's actually not good for the baby. Oh. Well, it's not good in general because it, like the an smoke. average average normal candle has, you know what I mean? When you light it, a lot of people don't oh. know there's some toxicity in mm-hmm. it. So you have to get sort of plant-based natural. candles or whatever, yep. natural candles. And made and from good, so, yeah. good essential mm-hmm. oils and all this stuff. I'm yeah. not sure what they use for fragrances. I feel like they might be. We can, we'll link to them in the show notes yeah, at wellevator.com. Yeah. But I wish I had one here for you to smell, James, because they smell incredible. So anyways, that's, yeah. that's Clive Davis's son. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Clive Davis was talking about the it factor and how it's this sort of aqueous thing that when you see it and feel it in a person, it's just there or it's not. He was talking about musicians and singers specifically, but certainly talking about artists of all kind. You know, Whitney's talking about your energy, James, and your smile and this aura that you bring. And I agree with her, man. Like from the moment we met, the first moment I met you is just this energy that you bring. And this idea of this it factor or this energy or this aura or this persona, I mean, what what does that mean to you? Like, when bring up the it factor, like for both of you guys, like what is what does that mean when you feel it, you see it in a person, you're like that person's got it. Like, what is the it? What is it? What is the it? I feel like it's a vibration because we're all cells, you know, in a way. So I think when someone is vibrating 
a certain frequency that it resonates with you, then we actually feel it in our bodies. But I think it's hard to kind of pinpoint because it's very intangible. And I think it may translate into different fields. I think for entertainment, I think people also include, you know, there's a sense of aesthetics or style or confidence. But for me, I think it's more of a presence thing, you know? And I think also that there's different type of, I don't know, you know, because someone could have it, but it may not necessarily be generous or kind. And then some people might have it, but there's a certain level of warmth that just makes you feel really at home. I feel like I've known this person in other lifetimes or I don't know. It is interesting. I guess it all depends on your definition. And one thing that we talk a lot about in in the episodes of the show is just the, the changing tides of what it is to be a professional, mainly in like the entertainment world, Mm -hmm. which all of us are kind of in in some way or another, because I do a lot of social media. And so for a lot of people, that's entertainment. Jason's doing social media, plus TV shows and commercials and music. James, you're doing all of this acting work. And you do something beyond that, right? What else do you do in your life? I mean, just in terms of like how I express myself. Yeah. Yeah. Spoken word and slam poetry has been sort of like a passion of mine. I think it's because I grew up in New York City. And so hip hop was like my first love. You know, music was kind of like the way that I felt like I got to express myself like in a way that was new for me and also felt very at home. You know, I think it's because when I was growing up, even though we were in the Mecca of culture, being part of like an immigrant working class family, we just weren't exposed to a lot of like the artistic life that New York offered. So I think hip hop for me was like this first door of like, oh, it resonates. I feel like I have a voice. I feel like it's... There's an energy that I can express that feels a little bit suppressed by the culture around me. So, so yeah, and, and as I've gotten older, that's evolved to this love of poetry and spoken word. One of the things that, that I'm curious about your attraction to, to hip-hop and sort of the, the energy and the cultural elements of it, because growing up in Detroit, I was attracted to not only hip-hop there, but also punk rock. And I remember when I was sitting and asking myself why these two particular musical genres resonated so much with me, still do, but especially in my teens and 20s when I was playing in bands, was I felt like in certain ways there was a thread through of these disenfranchised young people from segments of the population that were throwaways or that were lower income or people weren't giving them as much social value or value as humans in general in the societal context. And the rise of hip-hop and the rise of punk rock of saying, we do have value. We're not going to do things the way you've done them. And it was this uprising using, as Felakuti said, music as a weapon. Like we're using music as social consciousness. We're using music as a way to demonstrate our value as a movement. And I'm curious if those aspects for you as a kid were, were part and parcel of what resonated with you about that. Oh my God, totally. I, I think... I felt like an outsider in so many different levels because one, so our family got to live in South Korea my first 10 years of life. And so when we landed in New York, first of all, it was just like a culture shock, right? 10 years old. And I think it was like end of February and New York, like in the nineties were just very, it was a completely different city. It was raw, it was grimy, smelly. Um, and just there was just a lot of clashing of different cultures and neighborhoods and you know and so and there was a lot of it also produced a lot of art and creativity because of that sort of melting pot environment but for me it was just like a huge adjustment of not speaking the language right and then you know i think 
probably the first seven, eight years, we probably moved. I remember going to like seven different schools in 11 years, including my childhood. So our family moved a bit in South Korea and then in New York, we moved quite a bit. I think it's just because when you're immigrants from another country and your family's figuring stuff out. And I've lived in uh, households of 12 people, eight people, and four people, you know? And so, you know, because you're living with, there was one time where we're living with our Uncle Charles's family and then our Aunt Sophia's family. My youngest Aunt Grace pretty much grew up with me because she's my mom's youngest sister. So in some ways, she was kind of like my, old, my older sister, you know? So we grew up in the same household until she got married. So I think it's just families trying to figure out different economic situations and also, you know, how do we coexist, you know, in these kind of numbers. So every year and a half, you know, I was changing schools and always feeling like the outside person, the newcomer. And that kind of comes with different dynamic too, because sometimes when you're the newcomer, there's a tension. They're like, oh, who's this new guy? You know what I mean? But I always felt like I had to really observe like and trying to figure out like the dynamic of each place, like the social dynamic. So there were places where I felt bullied and like unwelcomed. And there were places where I felt like, oh, people really like that I'm a new person and bringing new energy. But I would think about acting later. And I think some of that came from having to almost like adapt to new environments. And uh, I read an article that Thomas Jane was talking about, and he talked about how he would sort of like go to new environments and almost like adopt like different personas that kind of gave him like a social advantage depending on the environment. And when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I think I was doing that subconsciously, even knowing what that was like. Like I would normally kind of track who the alphas were and subconsciously I would be kind of like embodying their characteristics to put myself in a socially advantageous place. And it was social survival at the time for me, survival mechanism. But I didn't even realize how that later kind of became sort of acting tools. Interesting. And when did you start officially acting? When did you start auditioning? Were you doing plays in school? Yeah. So it was, so my last year in Boston, you know, I was finishing up school there. Uh, College? Yeah. I was invited to play in an improv group. What were you studying in college? Communication. Yeah. Communication and broadcast journalism. So I, my passion growing up was sports. You know, I was a huge NBA head. I loved basketball. And I thought, yeah, yeah. So I thought I was going to- (laughs) podcast. So I thought that I was going to maybe work for the NBA or ESPN. That was kind of like, you know what I mean? And my, my fantasies were like, you know, one day maybe I could be an analyst or work with a team, you know, oh my God. Like I would fantasize about owning a team and what kind of, you know what I mean? Moves and transactions that I would do. That, that was like, I would daydream about that. But my last year in Boston, I got to try out improv, Im- improvisational comedy. And I've never, I didn't even know such thing existed. Was this part of BU or was this? Uh, this like... was at New England Art Institute okay. in Brookline. Okay. Got and, it. Um, and I think it was like an informal team and, you know, they just kind of invited me. And, and so, we, you know, we would go and, and do these all these games and exercises. And I was like, what is this? I didn't know this existed. And it just gave me a permission to play in a completely new way. And I just fell in love with it. So, and I felt like my sort of life arc in the East Coast was arcing out at that point because a lot of people after finishing school was going back to New York City. All of my family was in the East Coast. I knew that I wasn't going to stay in Boston. And I just felt like, I don't know, like life was just kind of calling me towards the West Coast. And I had experienced LA once 
I did a culture exchange program to Vietnam where we taught English. Yeah. And the training for the team was in Catalina Islands. So they had us fly to LA and then they took us to Catalina for a week where we got to train as a Why team. Why Catalina? Maybe because they had the facility there and it was like in nature. It was during the summer. So maybe they wanted to kind of like just make sure the team was in a, a really good environment before because when we got to Vietnam it was really hot it was during the summer you know the conditions weren't very easy so uh but I remember falling in love I was like oh my god you know I grew up on the east coast my whole life and you come here and you're just like what like what have I been doing you know so anyway so as soon as I was done with school you know I, I bought a one-way ticket and I think I had one suitcase with me and came out to LA and this was in 2001 and two years later was when I started acting professionally there's an interesting thread through that I'm already and I know there's so much more to learn about your life, James. I mean, I'm already learning so much more about you. The interesting thread through, though, to me is you being thrown into all of these new social environments repeatedly as a young person over and over and over again and getting to not only adopt this chameleonic part of your persona, which has obviously fed your acting career in your ability to try on different personas and move your energy and use your voice and your energy in different ways to adjust to these social situations. But the other aspect, what comes up for me is the possibility of being rejected or cast out by a new group of social people, right? And, and how you go to a new school or you go to a new group of friends or any new social group and the rampant fear that can exist of, will they accept me? Will I fit in? Will they say yes to me? And the point in bringing this up is, as an actor... I am curious how that experience of your youth and those new socialist situations and new school experiences, did that train you to be more resilient in the face of no and not landing roles in your acting career? And in general, how the hell do you deal with that, man? Like on an emotional, mental, spiritual level, how do you deal with that? Yeah. To your first question, I think absolutely yes. I think having gone through that experience in some ways trained me for just the reality of being an actor. And I would say growing up, that was a fear that I constantly dealt with of just like being an outcast, not feeling accepted. And it actually gave me a lot of social anxiety that actually continued throughout my 20s. And because I think it taught me adaptability and also growing up in New York City, I think in general, it teaches you how to survey the environment and make quick assessments, you know, about people, about energy, about is this a safe place or not a safe place, you know? And so I think it really trained me. So it did come in handy when I moved to LA. I don't necessarily recommend that childhood growing up in New York and literally like just sort of us raising ourselves in the streets and in the subways. And I think about just, you know, again, it was a different city back then. And you know, no one has cell phones, you know, and some people have pagers, you know, if lucky. So I think about, man, like if I didn't come home, literally, my family wouldn't know like what happened to me, you know, you know, so, but it definitely taught me toughness and gave me a sort of a different layer of skin that I think translated to resilience. So being in acting and being an actor, that's something that you constantly have to deal with, but I guess in a different context. And I think subconsciously it did help me to, there's a part of me be like, you know what, man, I grew up in New York City, like, this can't stop me, you know? And so no matter what happened, and of course, there have been times during my, you know, I'm going on 17 years now in this profession. And, you know, I, I definitely had times where I was like, man, do I need to walk away? You know, maybe it just vibrationally, I'm meant for something else now, or maybe, maybe I'm moving on to a different chapter. 
And there were times where I did have to walk away for, you know, energetically, mentally for a couple of years or whatever. And then it allowed me to come back to the industry in a completely fresh energy and like, you know, falling in love with my craft again. And actually, I feel like the last couple of years, that's what it's been, you know, because there's been times in my life where I wasn't in my love with the craft. I definitely wasn't in love with the industry and I needed to spatially, energetically like walk away, you know, um, not renouncing it, but like I need to reconnect with other parts of my life right now. This is not the priority. And, you know, now it, I, I feel like I have a really great relationship to it again. That's amazing. Well, I don't know if you remember this super clearly, but we met in 2005 on a short film. Oh my God. Called Disarmed. I forgot about that. <laughs> Holy cow, that's right. And you were the onset photographer. Yes. And you know what I just realized? Yeah. The photographer, the the tripod we're using right now, yeah. I bought for that film. No Stop way. It. That yes. is Stop so it. crazy. That's so funny because I just kept remembering, you know, when we... Yeah, yeah. That tripod. This tripod. Oh my God. James, do you recognize it? <laughs> that's, that's so insane. Broken now, but... um. Because I keep thinking about, you know, when we met in Studio City and the whole interior kitchen set and that's the store, right? right? Yep. right? Yep. So that, I know. It's like I, a different lifetime. Yeah, yeah. So I keep associating well, I that as our up. first meeting. But no, yeah, I just cow. looked it up. It was 2005. We did that short holy film. I, I had this tiny little camera and I got the job on Craigslist. I think I was paid for it. Yeah. I'm almost positive it was. Yeah. And I got the job on Craigslist. I had this tiny point and shoot camera. And I yeah. had only been out in LA for, I came out end of 2004, Four. I think, right? So that was like one of my first jobs back then. And, wow. and I just wanted to be on film sets because I was yeah. pursuing a film career at the time. And and doing photography as kind of like a side hustle slash networking yeah, opportunity. Yeah. So I have I was like hoping I could pull up the pictures really quickly. I know I have them somewhere. Maybe they're on a hard drive. I know I have them. So yeah, like yeah. I have photos of you <laughs> from 2005. But the crazy thing is, wow. you invited me to a party you had in Chinatown. Little Tokyo. Was it Little Tokyo? Okay. Yeah. Was it a birthday party? I think it was a birthday party. Oh God, I went yes. by myself. I'm super introverted, but I was like, I should just go to keep in yeah. touch. And I remember you coming up to me and be like, you're the photographer. Like you always refer to me as the photographer, <laughs> right? And then, you know, over time, people just go on with their lives. But then I saw you on that show Heroes. Yeah. And I remember watching like an episode or two and be like, wow, he looks really familiar. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me and I like ran to my computer and looked it up and i'm like that's james yeah yeah because so, that started the show started the year after i met you so it was yeah nuts. right next year yeah i mean that, was that your first like big show was totally. would you consider that a big break like how oh, did that show absolutely you? you know so how I, did that happen yeah i'm so curious so i started acting professionally in 2003 right and like when i met you i was kind of in that so the two and a half years before hero started was i was literally living like that life of the working actor of like you know just making a living, like doing commercials and short films and whatever I could get my hands on. You know what I mean? And so... Reworking at a, as a waiter or anything? <laughs> um, no, I... Uh, let's see. I, I definitely bartended before I came to LA. And then, you know what? I tried serving tables for like a week in LA. And it was my first time. And after a week, I was like, oh, this is not for me. Yeah. <laughs> like behind the bar, I'm great at. But I'm glad I had that experience because I was like, I knew. I was like, oh, my God, after a week, like this is not. I don't, for some reason, it just it just didn't translate for me, you mm -hmm. know? I, feel, I, I think it's because I loved being a bartender because behind the bar, 
it was still connective. Like when I was working at a bar in Boston, so many people sat down and they just wanted to converse. You know what I mean? Especially right. during happy hour. Where and in was, Boston was that? Uh, this was in, um, is it Copper Square? Copley? Is that what it's called? Copley, Copley yep. Square. So they had a big sort of like food place called Marche. And underneath, yes! yeah, yeah. I loved Marche. Yeah, Marche oh, was good. And then, no, honestly, yeah. wasn't Marche cool? Yeah, Marche was so cool because they had like literally <laughs> it's like, like Italy. Italy tw- yes. is like they now have we like have Italy. 20 different stations where you could oh, go around and like yeah. try different kinds of cuisines. And then on the lower level of Marche was a French wine bar called the Caveau, which Okay. means the cave and so that's where i worked at mostly and sometimes i'll go upstairs at marshy and kind of like bounce back and forth but i uh, that was a cr- to, i'm so glad yeah. that it was Marche yeah. Yeah. Marche was one of those like i don't know if they had that in other cities or if it was just a boston thing but i was in college mm-hmm. when Marche was up yeah. so i couldn't yeah. really like spend the money to go but i think i went there with my parents or like i would splurge every once in a while yeah just walking around there was so cool yeah and and like that reminds me how my food i was such a food lover from, yeah from, but i w- never thought it was going to be my career i was in film school and going to a place like that it just like had this yeah. cool experience oh my gosh wow. so that, that's so cool that okay. part of my life i remember very clearly because bartending at at the Caveau in marche was one of five jobs that i had that during that time. I mean like at the same time. At the same time. So So I was going to New England Art Institute at the time. And like, you know how it is when you're like, you know, on your early 20s and you're trying to hack life and just trying to survive. Literally how I got through was I was a resident coordinator for the school. So they gave me a free apartment. And then I worked at, I think it was called Boston Fitness Club, that big gym. Yep. That was in downtown, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like their version of Equinox. Yes, yes, yes. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, actually right by Emerson. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Yep. So, I worked, so I worked there okay. twice a week, which gave me a free gym membership. And then I was both a tutor and I worked at the information technology office, the IT office at the school. And then I bartended at Marche and at the Caveau because the employees got to eat there. So Wait, did you was... actually plan that? Were you like, okay, where do I need to eat, work out? Yeah, where it's my... very strategic. <laughs> I, I was literally just trying to Tim Ferriss' life before, <gasps> like, I even knew, like, you know, like, like, yeah, that. before the four-hour work week. So I was literally <laughs> like, how can I survive? I'm making like this is the amount of money that I need to make, even just because I was completely on my own at that point. I had decided that I was not gonna like accept any money from my family, you know, just because I don't know. It just it was more like. I think it was like my first threshold of like claiming that I'm a man. Like mm. I'm I'm going to be completely independent and autonomous because at that point I was I felt like it was me sort of saying, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to be influenced or dictated by what my family wants. This is I'm making my own decisions and which also means financially like I have to be on my own. And it was incredibly hard. I remember like I Oh my God. I, I remember even I had to apply for like an EBT card in Boston, you know, which is like basically mm-hmm. a food assistance program, you yeah. know? So, but that was part of like surviving and having those five jobs. And, and the reason I remember specifically because I had to close Marche or the Caveau on Saturday nights, right? And then I had to open Boston Fitness Club on Sunday because Ooh. that's the only shift that they gave me, right? So last call in Boston is like 2 a.m. 2 a.m., right? <laughs> and then it takes a good 45 minutes to close up, right? Mm-hmm. Clean up and set up and everything. So, you know, earliest I'll get out is at 2.45. And this is after the T, which is like the metro system yep. in Boston, stops running. So I had to walk from Copley Square all the way into, I think the apartment was near Fenway at the time. 
and then eventually at, so into at Brookline. So at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Yeah, you were yeah. So home. at 3 a.m. I was walking home, and that took about good 45 minutes to an hour. And then I got home, and Boston is cold, man, at night. Mm-hmm. So literally, and I don't know, the heater in our apartments sometimes will not go. Or it would make that click, click, clack noise. If you grew up in New York or Boston, you know that mm-hmm. piping noise, that mm-hmm. yep, whatever. Yep. <laughs> so I would literally put on seven layers of clothes, including a freaking coat, like an overcoat, go to bed. And then I'd have to wake up at like 6 or 6.30 to go open the, you know, the club whenever it go. I don't know if it would open at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., you know, whatever it was. And then meanwhile, you have all these wealthy people that are members because that's like a high-end gym place. Yes, yes. There's that feeling of like, wow, now you're like serving all of these people that are privileged for the most part. And they don't even know what you've gone through just to get into work that day. And Winnie, I was just even trying to stay awake because I'm going on, I don't know, maybe like four hours of sleep, right? And like, so we open, I'm in the front and then I, there was also the smoothie bar and, you know, I loved making smoothies, you know, so I was doing that. And literally at the counter, I would feel myself like literally like falling asleep and I had to like pinch myself to like, oh man, that what was, a, that was, was this? A, this was like 2000, 2001. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. I don't know how I did it back then, but again, I guess it trained me for maybe 16-hour days on set. I don't know. You know? Right. Yeah. How yeah. interesting. Okay, so let's fast forward back. You're in LA. You do Disarmed. That's right. Yeah, okay. okay yeah. So, so 2006. So Doing short film. Were you yeah, doing a bunch yeah. of short films? I was doing whatever I can again. You know what I mean? You know, whatever paid and sometimes unpaid. I was think, Disarmed paid? I think Disarmed paid me like a little bit of money, like maybe a hundred bucks or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, I was literally just doing all kinds, you know, I was doing print modeling, I was doing commercials, I was doing TV shows and and films. And it was like that life of literally like I had all, like my car was like a walk-in closet, literally. Totally. And you, I would go to like four different auditions and just change, change on the street. At that point, you don't even care if like who looks at you and, you know, there's no time to like go into a bathroom and yet. So literally like my trunk had all the like headshots and resumes. It was like a little office and, and in the backseat are all my clothes and different outfits, you know, maybe, you know, I got to go be a college student here and like, a, you know, like, <laughs> like, and then wear a suit for Microsoft here. And it's just like, so anyway, I, so it was that life and like grabbing lunch on the go. And then Heroes came about. It was like the only second, actually, I think it was the first network pilot that I ever read for. And I've never even heard of this thing called pilot season. I didn't know what it was, you know? Yeah, like, do you play pilots? I don't. So, <laughs> so it was like, yeah, it was like the first network pilot I ever read for. And then that translated into like five different auditions, testing for the show you know, going to Universal, then NBC, and then and then I got cast. And um, it was literally, so it became like a five-year run of like my graduate school in television. Like it was where I got educated on, on, on how TV shows get made. Wow. wow. You were and- thrown into the fire. I mean, that's literally like for, a, for yeah. a young actor at the beginning of their career. And we hear stories of this, right? Of people like whatever, quote, plucked from obscurity. But man, that's like, hey, guess what, James? Throwing you in the deep end, bud. Hope you can swim. Yeah. I mean, I mean, was it a mixture yeah. of terror, excitement, just jubilation? I mean, what was the emotional experience for that? Oh my god, all of the above. I remember filming the pilot, and I think we were filming like in month of March or something, and just seeing like the sheer size of the crew, and that was and, a big show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, did you ever watch it, Jason? Yeah, I did. Any point of the season, they had 250 people working on this show. 
everybody from literally on set to, you know, the writers, to production coordinators, to people who are doing visual effects and special effects. And so that taught me like, wow, we're just one small cog in this gigantic wheel. And it really takes everybody showing up and doing their job in the best way that they can to create something together, you know? So that was really good education for me. But in terms of emotions, yeah, like I actually didn't even know what I was in at the time. I think I was just going like episode by episode. You know, the first couple of seasons, I was a recurring character, but then my character just started becoming in almost every episode, right? And so it started becoming integral part of like the storylines. And so, you know, at first, I think I was booked for like the first five episodes. And then they said, okay, you're going to be in the whole season. And there was a couple of times, like all the different characters went to different close calls in terms of like dying and some of the characters that get killed off. So there was a couple of times where I was like, oh my God, is this it for me? Like maybe I'm getting killed off, you know? And so- Like Game of Thrones. Yes, yes. So (laughs) a lot of like emotional roller coasters, right? And then I also had to speak a foreign language in the show. So like I was working with a translator and a coach and just spending a lot of time with that. And so it was a lot of stress that I experienced during it, both emotional and physical of- like long days and and then you know we started airing while we were filming and then there was a spotlight and of course like you know what came with the show and that was all new for me right like that was a completely new experience of like oh people start recognizing you on the street and they want to you know whatever and what was uh, that like like was that how did your ego respond to that yeah it was everything it was you know, it was a lot of jubilation of like, oh my God, like being recognized for your work. And that just, that feels really good, right? You know, and people coming up to you like, dude, we love the show. We love your character. So there was that. And then with that also came a lot of social anxiety because I don't know, maybe because it's not so much that I changed, but my relationship to the world changes a little bit. And I think that's, that was a very hard transition for me because I think at the time they didn't really have I think now when you go through shows, there are consultants and coaches to help you emotionally calibrate, right? Like, oh, really? Yeah, like, like, like if you're new to fame or or doing publicity for the first time, like, what is like, you know, like, what do you do when you're on a red carpet and people are asking you these questions? And you know, I, so I think peop, the industry has evolved, so there are more people to talk about with that. But for me, I just didn't have those resources. Were you friends with the other actors on the show? Eventually, yeah. But I was definitely but at the again, very beginning. You're, I mean, you were with some people that had already been working. Yeah, for a again, long time. this this new this theme of being the new guy. You know, I right. felt that again because everybody had come from other TV shows and having a film career. So I definitely felt like the new guy, the rookie, and I was like, oh, I'm I'm on a team of all stars, and and mm-hmm. so there was that extra pressure I felt of needing to prove myself. And so was it I, clicky at all? Like what, when you're on on a show, like does it get like school where I think it can. I, I think it can and... be, you know, especially our show had a big cast, and you know, I think you know at some point we had twelve to fourteen regulars. So you know, any group with that size too, you know, obviously you know, people are going to gravitate towards different people. I think for me, I was just trying to get my bearings of like the work and like adjusting to reality of like, yeah, just a new sense of reality, right? And financially, it's a big change too when you're working regularly. Sure, sure, sure. And that part was a big blessing, obviously, you know, being exposed to just different kinds of, you know, like growing up in New York City in an immigrant family, you know, we weren't exposed to... You know, I mean, like, 
we were never starving, but we certainly weren't considered wealthy. So I think that was completely new too. Like flying first class everywhere, and and as an actor, you know, when you're working, they do treat you amazingly on set. You know, everything is really taken care of. Like there's nothing to ever complain about when you're on set as an actor. You know, they, they feed you, clothe you, and just it just. You know, I know that some of the days can be long, but literally even worst day on set is there's so much to be grateful for. So, but I remember definitely going through a transition and, and also psychologically it was tough of like, I think at some point I felt lost because I didn't really know who I was. And do you think that was like to do with your age or just this abrupt transition in your life? I think it was both. I think it was, mm-hmm. you know, I was going into my thirties, right? So you're kind of entering a different chapter of your life. And then just this idea of starting to be someone that's public. And so what does that mean? And then I think it probably had some triggers that I experienced when I was growing up in New York City of like the social anxiety aspect, you know, where I'm going and, you know, I, I could go to a place and I'm like, oh, I'm not completely anonymous anymore. Like, wow. You're like, mm. you know, people see and hear what you do and say, and there's a certain expectation or pressure that comes with that. Right. And I can't just... I felt like at the moment, I couldn't just be, I don't know, who I was. And I feel like I've come to a really great place with that, where that doesn't really matter now, you know, because like I am who I am now, you know, and, and but I think at the time, it just, it was just a very, it was definitely a change. And I didn't know how to quite adapt to that change because it was almost like a new type of transition for me. Has spirituality or different sort of psychic explorations played a role in this for you in the sense let me get more specific about what i'm asking yeah i think that we can get lost in the idea of who we are supposed to be or who others expect us to be especially when there is money and fame and success tied to it yeah in any industry specifically we're talking about hollywood which is certainly the most visible industry in that of you get a little bit of success you get a series regular you get more money than you've ever had coming in and it's so easy for people to believe that that's who they are that as soon as that series ends or that opportunity gets taken away, we see this happen with so many celebrities taking their lives or yeah. perhaps getting into drug addiction yeah. or hopelessness or losing themselves. Yeah. So for you, James, just being in this industry and being a working actor with these wonderful credits in your artistic career, how have you managed identity and ego and the spiritual, psychic, mental part of all that? Like, how have you stayed balanced and sane and centered in yourself through all that? What practices do you do and have done to do that? I think it's really began, that journey really began like around 2012, 2013, where so I was invited by a couple of friends of mine and they were hosting this thing called the Spiritual Talk in uh, their house. This was uh, Justin Baldoni and Travis Van Winkle. Uh, Justin uh, was on uh, Jane the Virgin. And he's now a director. And um, I believe his roommate at the time was Andy Grammer. They were living in the house, in a house in West Hollywood. And there was a third guy there named Adam. Um, and I've known Travis because we met playing on the same basketball team for, for USO called the Hollywood Knights, where we would go on these tours, basketball tours and play like the teams from, you know, the Navy, Army, Air Force. Oh, and, fun. Yeah. And then, you know, and raise money for charities. So uh, we got to do a tour in Italy. So I met Justin through Travis, and so they invited me, hey, like, hey, we're doing this thing called a spiritual talk. You should, you know, check it out, you know? So I was curious. I went and checked it out, and... 
Like you went to just what? Observe. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And again, the first day I definitely felt a little bit, well, I, this time I was kind of like observing from the outside because I wasn't sure what it was. And Because a lot of people have different definitions of spirituality. Yeah, it's very yeah. very true. And yeah, in this town, yeah. there are many iterations of that for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. And this was really cool because even the discussion was inspired by the Baha'i faith, which that Justin, Travis, and Andy, they were all kind of part of, which is a beautiful, amazing faith. The talk itself and the community wasn't exclusive to like one type of religion or walks of life. It was really about coming together, Rain Wilson, also part of that community, and just asking life's big questions mm-hmm. and just having space for a conversation about those things. So for me, it was really um, enlightening because up until then, I didn't, I've had no spiritual practice, you know? And I certainly wasn't part of a spiritual community, and which is, I think, also part of why I was having such a hard time during my hero's days, because there wasn't something that was really anchoring or grounding me, mm-hmm. you know, as such thing as a faith or a practice or a family or, you know, now I'm married and have a child and, you know, like it's so grounding to have that home base, right? But I didn't have any of that. And then, you know, you kind of start parting in the Hollywood scene a bit and you, you, it's very easy to kind of go sideways and start all these nonsense about yourself and the world. And, and so I feel like coming out of that place and really then entering into this community in that environment was so healthy for me. And I started reading a book called The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. And that really kind of cracked my heart open was because it was a story of an athlete that had a huge sort of life turn and then and started experiencing a spiritual path. And so I was able to relate a lot because I have a very sort of athletic mentality in mm-hmm. how I approach life and the craft, you know, that led way to, you know, discovering, you know, like Deepak and, you know, all these different authors and then hearing more about the Baha'i faith and, and that writing and being part of a spiritual community. So that really began a journey for me of, you know, asking different type of questions and really kind of seeing myself with sobriety of like where I was. And I'm like, wow, my heart and my character just needs a lot of work. I just, I need a lot of growing. So that's, I think that was the turn. So many people, I think Whitney and I talk about this because we're personal development junkies. You know, we're always looking to expand and grow and transform. And we just love learning. We know we're always, you know, you know this from, you know, athletics, students of the game. You always want to know more, learn more and study. But so many people, I think, feel terrified with the prospect of really looking at themselves because it's not just looking at perhaps some of the unanswered questions or the questions they haven't even asked themselves of why am I here? What is my purpose? What does my heart want? Where am I on this journey? What's the journey even about? But perhaps some of the traumas or the pain or the things that are so deeply buried. I mean, I talk to people about working on ourselves and some people are scared as hell to do it. Mm. You know, so I guess this is, you know, it's a question for all of us because there are layers to this, right? We work on ourselves. There's another layer, more layers. It seems like there's an infinite number of layers to healing and growth. So, you know, I guess how do we cultivate the willing? I mean, I'm looking at something right now. Whitney and I talked about it last night of like, uh, this avoidant behavior that I engage in sometimes in romantic relationships, getting Mm. to look at that. Mm. It just seems once you say yes to checking the growth box, if you will, there's no end to the opportunities of yeah. facing sometimes the scary, terrifying, or surprising elements of our psyche and our being that we didn't even know were there. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know if I have a question about this per se, but it's how do, what is it within us perhaps that other people have not cultivated or 
they see the fear and they just turn around and don't face it. And what is it about the cultivation of courage in the face of fear? You know, there's just something about that practice of like, I'm terrified of this, but I'm going to face it anyway and go deep into, as Joseph Campbell said, you know, the dark cave where the yeah, monster is. Yeah, yeah. But the treasure is in the cave too. Yeah. The monster's there, yeah. but the treasure's in the cave. Yeah. So if we want the treasure, which is in this case, I think self-awareness, yeah. we've got to be f willing to face our quote monsters. Yeah. But some people just can't do it. Yeah. It sounds like for your story, James, that you wanted to, uh, like you were talking about, be independent. So it's almost as if you had to learn your strengths and tap into your strengths in order mm. to, to get that independence, right? It was like yeah. a almost like a survival thing for yeah. yourself. Yeah. And I think it, it actually comes down to survival at the end of the day. We, Jason and I often talk about the core things that we want, which is to survive and to love. Mm. I mean, I think survival is probably at the root of everything, even love, Sure. right? Because love yeah. makes us feel happier and at peace, but love also can mean that we're progressing the species forward yeah. if we're going to have children yeah. or that we feel comforted so that makes it easier to get by. Yeah. So we come down to these like basic human needs. Yeah. And I think some people are just unaware that in order to get those needs, it's more of a, a practice of going inwards versus outwards. Yeah. Yeah. I think that comes back to, for you, the struggle that you were having, James, when you suddenly have this fame and money and success and 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 fulfillment, but it also, in a way, led you to feeling lost. Because do you think that that was maybe maybe it was like you find like we talk a lot about this actually on the podcast that a lot of us are kind of striving to get to the next level. Mm. Was it conflicting to you when you got to this big level? Did you feel like wow, here I am, this is what I've been working for? I mean, you have you. It's like yeah. you struggled with money. And now you have money yeah. and it's like yeah. regular, like you've security yeah. for years. Yeah. A lot of people don't experience that very much. Right. You know, some people go through constant feelings of insecurity financially yeah. for you. Yeah. Now you have an amount of money maybe you hadn't seen before yeah. or yeah. however it was manifesting. But then you have fame, which a lot of us just kind of want so badly. Sure, a lot of people yeah. are just on this quest for fame, like just wanting to be validated by other people, wanting to be seen, wanting to be recognized. and you receive that. So was there a, a part of you that felt like now I have all these big things that I want and not many people get? And is it like, what does that feel like? Yeah, to, yeah. Because I haven't, I don't think that I've experienced that to that level, Yeah. right? So yeah. what, what was that like for you on a positive or maybe even challenging side? Yeah, I'm really glad I got to experience the both sides because it, it showed me that that's not where the answers are, you know, sort of the, the exterior conditions. Um, because I learned that you just normalize to whatever the standard becomes. So when I didn't have money, that was normal. And then when I did have money, that was normal. And so I... Uh, like, trying to think about your question. Yeah. So in other words, I, I, I'm really glad that you said that about normalizing because yeah. I feel like that's something anybody can relate to is you really want something, you get it, and then you get used to having it. Totally. Totally. It's like, yeah, this I, is I my think new about, reality. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I yeah. think about that all the time. I mean, Jason just got a new computer and it's like, wow, right now he's experiencing what it's like to have this brand new computer that he saved up his money for. And it's on the other side of a struggle because he had this old computer that wasn't working very sure. well. But in a month, you're going to be used to that computer and that's the new norm. And so mm -hmm. something that you really wanted, you finally get. And then suddenly it's just a normal thing. Yeah. 
Or perhaps it's this idea that we build something up in our minds to be this life-defining experience per se. Mm -hmm. When I get this big role or a series regular or leading man in a movie or make my first seven-figure salary or buy a Tesla yeah. or like name, name a billion different things. There, there are things I think as humans that we build up in our mind as these penultimate experiences that as soon as I get that, yeah. then my life will be worth it. Then the struggle will have been worth it. Right. But then we get the thing and somehow our life isn't magically transformed the way we thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I never have to work again, or I never have to audition again, or I never have to struggle again, or I'm never going to experience pain again. I, I, I think there's just this strange cultural narrative that mm. we can somehow, by achieving certain material things or status or fame or wealth, that will inoculate ourselves against struggle, pain, and suffering. Like, that's a big part of our cultural narrative. Just do that, get that, be that, yeah. and you'll never feel pain again. You'll never right. struggle again. Yeah. And, and where does it's that... a lie. It's, I, it's clearly a lie. But totally. where does that messaging even come from? Which is, it's so odd because I've had that mentality. I don't know where that came from. I remember the first thing that comes to mind as we're discussing this is meeting people from social media that have been really successful and then thinking, huh, they don't seem as happy as I thought they would be. Or, mm. huh, I, they don't seem as secure with themselves as mm -hmm. they protect, you know, they come across on yeah. camera as. Yeah. And I would find that so strange. Like, this person is not who I thought they were going to be. And over time, I've realized it was because I was projecting what I thought a person would be like when they got to that level of success. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like this ongoing, we keep, we, we hear both things. We hear like, or somehow we have this cultural narrative of celebrity, right? Yeah. And we put people up on this pedestal. Yeah. But then we also hear over and over again, well, they're just people like us. They're mm. just normal people. Yeah. But somehow, mentally, our society still thinks of people at a certain status as being different right. or better than or something. It's yeah. like a separation. So it's interesting for you, you've kind of been on, on both sides of mm. it. Yeah. And then it sounds like you're saying you're still you're just the same person on either side. Is well, right? I, I you know, that was that was one of the biggest lessons that I I learned is getting there was not it just kind of brings you in the same place of because like you know when the show ended, when Heroes ended, my life was in a great place on paper, right? I was making good money and I was traveling the world and you know doing these publicity things and and having all kinds of like first class experiences, you know? And, but I remember feeling like my soul was in a crisis, you know, and just like not knowing what to do with that emptiness. And I think one of the reasons that acting really called me was it was a connective thing. It allowed, it was a platform and a craft that allowed me to know myself better and connect with others, right? Through storytelling, through collaborating, you're putting yourself in another character's shoes, so you're learning about humanity and empathy, right? And all the dynamic range that exists. And but for some reason, I felt so disconnected from myself, from the world. And, and so again, I think just um, going through a sort of a new spiritual path allowed me to come back to a place. And you know, it's funny, I think we all have this innate desire to want to be known, and it's the thing that we want the most, and it's the thing that we are scared of the most, you know? And so I definitely went through that journey of like, through the craft of acting, I'm truly, when I'm doing my job, exposing myself to be known through the character. 
And yet through the industry, I was almost like distancing myself from the world. And like it was, I was using it as a cover. And I was like, oh, I'm not letting myself to be truly shown and known. And so I think having a spiritual practice and exploring and embodying vulnerability and authenticity and, and which allowed, you know, for me to, you know, meet my wife and partnership is a whole level of that, right? You know, where you're allowing yourself to be known and it's also the most amazing and scariest thing in the world, right? And being in a relationship through that aspect. So yeah, so I, I'm really glad that I went through that lesson. And I think now, you know, I'm at a place where, oh, it's so symbiotic. Our spiritual, my spiritual practice is something that is continuing and it will evolve and I'll continue to learn new things. And there is no there, you know, that it really like, yes, give everything that I can through my craft and enjoy that. And the most important thing for me right now is my family, you know, my wife and my baby and the family that we're going to keep creating. Um, so they're all, they're all important in different ways but it's really nice to have that foundation of my anchor of home life and i feel like now i can kind of like give into the craft as a way of servicing and also expressing myself mm -hmm. so where do you go from here then um and just keep doing you know what what i've been doing uh i think i think my new commitment is i just want to be the best actor that i can be you know and so that is sort of an unending journey because that's a personal journey, right? You know, and I do believe that for me, this is a lifelong craft. And, you know, 17 years in, I, I feel like I'm just beginning. And I think the bigger picture is how can I truly serve a greater purpose through storytelling? You know, mm. uh, obviously playing these type of different characters that maybe speak a story that people haven't heard or, or giving a voice to a story that people do need to hear. Also, maybe creating my own content that could be, I've always had this dream of, you know, creating a production company where we could really create empowering stories, where I give voice to stories that just hadn't had a voice yet, um, especially for communities and people that are underrepresented or, you know, undervoiced. And I love like creating teams, you know, I love when like the Justice League or the Avengers where people with different superpowers come together and yeah. able to kind of collaborate and coexist and alchemize to create something that, you know, we just would not be able to on our own. And so I think, which is why that's probably what I love so much about just, you know, working on a TV show or a film set is people with these quote unquote different superpowers are coming together and, yeah. and together we're making something, you know, and, and there's a sense of belonging, right? That we all need and want to feel and during that however many weeks or months you're working on that project that's sort of like the family that you belong to and then you mm -hmm. kind of move on to the next and and so it is a very strange profession because in some ways it's replicating kind of like my childhood of like you're going from one environment to another right like you work in you work on a tv show yeah. uh sometimes it could be two weeks sometimes it could be two months sometimes it could be five years but eventually that ends and you move on to another project environment community and so you know i'm not sure if that's it's sort of meta in a way one's reflecting the other but i do appreciate it in a different light this begs, I think, a very obvious question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask that question. What's your superpower, James? Ooh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I've been told that I'm really good at bringing people together. Um, Magnetism. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, I I do love you know. So for the past few years, I've hosted a lot of different groups in our home, 
you know, everything from we would read books like The Intuitive Way or The Artist Way, you know. I love learning together as a group, you know, because I feel like we all bring different perspectives and, and an eye and there's something about just being in the room together with other human beings. And I love that alchemy, you know? And then I host this event called Music and Flow, which I love for you guys to come soon, where it's a combination of live music, spoken word poetry, and creative writing. And again, there's a sense of alchemy because I invite all these talented musicians who's never played together before. And at the end of the night, they become like an instant band. And That's we have so a jam cool. session and <laughs> a poetry piece that was written that night turns into a song oh, and we all kind of like oh. get to sing it together and so wow. it's a very communal experience and so and i really loved hosting things like that so i think that's what people have told me i'd also love to talk about your marriage if you if yeah. you're op open to it because yeah. i think relationships are are so interesting and i thought it was interesting that jason brought up some of his shared some of his vulnerability with relationships and and mm. that and maybe maybe the two of you can uh kind of have a it's almost like you're in you're in very different places oh very much so <laughs> polar opposites Which, actually exactly so in a way I'm, I'm actually interested about the the opposite side so i mean did you want to talk any further about what you've been feeling lately jason well, and then I, we can hear kind of some of the opposite perspective i just I, I i think in decoding my subconscious resistances to being in a long-term relationship or a marriage mm. or family right mm. and, and observing observing the beautiful container you've created with with jamie and your baby and this beautiful family you have james mm. uh in reflecting and observing your life, it brings up this subconscious narrative that I think I've held on to for a while. And I remember a musician friend of mine a few years back, maybe about four years ago, we were talking and he said, he, he's, he was British. He said, yeah, you know, I, I just, I don't want to settle down. And I was like, why don't you want to settle down? He's like, it's going it, to, it, it's my fuel, my, my motivation, my, my edge will just go away. And I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. He said, if, if I'm happy and I'm grounded and I'm secure and I've and the search is over and I, I mm. he's like, my, my fuel, my whole basis for my music will go away. And I yeah. realized yeah. that I think that for me and a lot of artists, there's this idea that struggle, unhappiness, pain mm. and suffering is the fuel mm. that creates a lot of great art. And it has created a lot of great art. Yeah. But I think for me, being honest about it and reflecting that with other friends I've talked to, it's become the default mechanism of this is where great art comes from. And I mm, think that's yeah. held me back a lot from really opening myself fully to the idea of a partnership, a wife, a family, because I'm like, well, then my, where's my edge going to be? Because mm, I've operated from that place for so long. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm reflecting that back to you of obviously being a husband, a partner, a father, like, yeah. I'm just curious how you do it because to be honest, man, like when I think about it, it terrifies me. It probably terrifies me because of that old operating system that I've held onto for mm -hmm. so long. Was there any fear or any like, wow, my life's going to be different? Or I'm just curious your experience of all that because it's still really yeah. new for you. Yeah. All of it's yeah. new, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 1000%. I could totally relate to what you're talking about too because I think we all, especially artists and performers, do this dance between discontentment and contentment, right? Like we're striving for the things that we think are going to make us content, but discontent is kind of providing that ambition and the drive and the fuel that you were talking about, you yes. know? And then, and then once we kind of arrive at a place, then we look for a different kind of discontentment to, again, fuel us, you know, that whatever that next level is. 
what I've discovered is that, yes, that is one type of fuel. And just like we have gasoline, we have solar, we have hydrogen, we have new, different, evolved modalities of fuel, that the fuel can come in different ways. And for me, committing to my wife and then having a child has opened up a new aspect of me that I could never even dreamed of, you know? And I think as, especially as a man, it unlocked something in my DNA as soon as my child was born. So I got to hold her for the first 23 minutes and she was just looking at me. And I just remember, I mean, first of all, I was like pretty much high, you know, at that point on emotion, you know, and, and uh, serotonin and, and oxytocin. And I'm just like, you know, I'm calling my baby, you know, queen and, you know, we're going to go here and do this, and you're going to do this for the world, and you're just going to do so many amazing things. But there's a sense of responsibility, of protection, of embodiment that I just didn't have access to before. And even committing to partnership with my wife, you know? And I know people have different association to the word marriage, but marriage is whatever you create it to be, you know? And when I committed to that too, I had to access a whole different aspect of myself that I didn't before, you know? And I think my guess is, you know, when you are creative and an artist, there is an initial resistance to that because it's been such a dominant messaging from a traditionalist point of view, right? Like whether it's your parents or your family or society or expectations, and it's been sort of like this traditional path of like, this is what happens as you get older, you get married and you create a family, yada, yada. So as a creative, I think we have an initial resistance to, I don't want to be told yes. what my life should look like. You yes. know, that's part of an essence of being a creative is that we get to kind of, you know, there's an unknown, there's an organic flow of how we create, you know? So, so don't draw a picture for me where put me in a box, I'm going to create my own flow. Some rebelliousness. Yeah, absolutely. And that's necessary for creativity of like, well, I'm not going to stay within these lines. I'm going to draw outside the lines. And so, so I definitely felt that. And, and then when you're in a profession where you're constantly going from environment to environment, group of people to group of people, and, you know, and then LA being a land of thousand acquaintances where, you know, <laughs> things are constantly transient. You're literally, you know, your cards are stacked with just of, you know, novelty and, and newness. So the idea of like, wow, this is the person that I'm going to wake up to for the rest of my life. That's scary. That's absolutely scary. It was scary for me. And yet when I met Jamie, it, this has never happened before. You know, the first date that we went, we went on, we fell in love in the first 15 minutes. And wow. we both knew that, oh my God, like it's you from another lifetime. And I've never had that experience with anyone else before. And I've met incredible women in my life, but this was the first time where there was like a soul knowing and that, oh, this is my partner for life. Not just this lifetime, but multiple lifetimes. And then, you know, it was important that we both felt that because it's kind of weird when it's just one person. <laughs> That's happened. <laughs> that happens to people too, you know? You film this? Mm, no, uh, not so much. Hmm, I, I love your enthusiasm, but <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't think I'm there, <laughs> you know? But luckily it was mutual. And even in the midst of that, even with that knowing, oh my God, and you know, we've, we've been together over six years now. And We've had to go through so much work, you know, as a partner, as a couple of just really, because that's a whole lifetime, lifetime of things that you're bringing now into a relationship. So it's, so it's important that we have to know ourselves. We're discovering ourselves differently through one another. 
So the work has to continue. And now you're kind of doing the work with someone, which is a whole different thing too. You know, and it's some incredible and amazing. It's not comfortable by any means, you know? You know, I would say so much of it is the willingness to have uncomfortable conversations and being able to be in that place of discomfort of looking at myself and like, wow, you know? Yeah, those things are from, gosh, like lifetimes ago, you know? And sometimes it could be generational, sometimes it could be cultural, but being able to, again, peel those layers and being, you know, willingness to look at it, that's very scary. And at the same time, it's the most incredible thing because it really taps onto our, again, our most basic desire of needing to be known and wanting to be seen. Maybe to circle back to a previous question about the fears that come up, is the desire to be known and the terror of being known mm. are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Well, isn't that you know, Mary Williamson's someone. quote too? She has that quote about our greatest fear is to be seen. Mm. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. not that we are inadequate. It's that we are powerful beyond measure. That's mm. her quote. And mm. it, But it's, isn't, it, isn't there also a line about Correct. that yeah. we're afraid of being seen, yeah. Yeah. seen or we're afraid yeah. of our own power? I forget the yeah. exact word. It, yeah, it's, yeah. It's this, I, I want to be seen, but to show somebody all of me or perhaps, as you said, James, through the mechanism of intimate relationship, seeing parts of me that I didn't even know were there and exposing these latent parts that yeah. have not been brought into the light fully. Yeah. But it's, my God, I mean, you just, you talking about it was giving me chills because it's like, that's, that is the work, isn't it? We can't do this in a vacuum. I mean, relationship is the mechanism through which we learn about one another. Because if we're just locked away yeah, yeah. in complete isolation, yes. we don't have a mirror, we don't have a person to share this energy and this life with, vis-a-vis, mm -hmm. -vis, we learn more about one another through relationship. Mm -hmm. It's a necessary aspect of the human experience. And isn't it such a genius thing that that's built into our human design, that by nature we are social beings and in order to survive, we have to be collaborative. Yeah. We have to be connective. And we actually discover the most about each other and ourselves through being in relationship with one another. Whatever, mm -hmm. however you define that relationship, you know, that in isolation, we literally cannot exist. And maybe that is tied into why some people choose to end their lives. It seems like a lot of people mm -hmm. end their lives when they're feeling isolated, mm -hmm. when they feel Absolutely, alone. yeah. And yeah. maybe that their brain is feeling like, I'm so alone, I can't survive. Yes. Even when they're literally mm. around people, some people feel so much social anxiety or so much deep despair and loneliness that ending your life is the ultimate form of aloneness, right? Yeah. It's you're yeah. literally now no longer part of society. And I'm really interested in how anxiety has become more and more prevalent and depression seems to be growing and, and how we're more connected than ever and yet mm. more disconnected than ever. Yes. And yeah. I, I feel like it's, there's so much polarization and in terms of what we think of one another yeah. and there's so much fear around relating to one another. It, it's really fascinating and, and also scary to me because yeah. I feel like a society needs to learn how to come together and communicate better and, and work yeah. through these things because when we do collaborate, that's when we are the most powerful. Yeah. yeah. And yet for some reason we go through so many periods of war and so many periods of fighting 
each other in all these different expressions of it. And I think I just think about that, the mental side of the human state a lot and and how people seem to be the happiest when they have community and when they feel supported and when they see feel seen even in the smallest way just being seen by one other person feeling understood by one other person can have a tremendous effect we have to work for it yeah yeah no that thousand percent and having gone through a period of very heavy uh, social anxiety i mean i have so much compassion and empathy for people who are struggling in that and how did you get through that oh boy it was it was tough i mean you know for me i think my darkest years were literally late teens and in early 20s where i remember being 21 and having anxiety attacks and feeling like i was gonna have a heart attack and i was like how am i 21 years old and you know what i mean like i feel like i'm about to die and yeah and i think as a creative it's not uncommon as just as human beings it's I feel like we all deal with anxiety on different levels. And, but I remember for me, even feeling like there were days where I couldn't leave the apartment, you know, because it was so heavy. And I learned to kind of cope with it through counseling and, and learning some different tools and, you know, vocal mantras, and then just kind of being connected to or being aware of, you know, my thought patterns and thinking and Obviously, meditation has helped with a lot of that. Some of the spiritual practice that I've come across lately has helped a lot. Um, but I think this battle that you're talking about is literally what we are exploring when we talk about the hero's journey. And, you know, it's, it's that conflict and battle with fear within ourselves, the unknown, the darker part of ourselves versus the light. And, and I think we express that through all types of different stories, right? But even all the movies... We see, you know, Marvel superheroes and good fighting evil. I think it's really, we're trying to address that of this kind of, you know, the conflict that we feel within ourselves, the fear and wanting to be seen versus, oh, but what if I'm completely seen and rejected? And also different aspect of ourselves, you know, like, man, this is a part of me that I'm not proud of, or I'm not, I don't like, and this is a part of me that I love and I'm so proud of. And, and so there's, so I think all of those things are playing at the same time. And I think a lot of times what we see externally out in the world is a reflection of what we are battling inside, you know? That's so well said. I think that as people begin to realize that there's a process of integration of all of the aspects of themselves to not deny the darkness, to not push away the light. It reminds me of a lot of studies talking about meditation, James, because we're huge proponents of it, that the energetic power of a few hundred people engaging in conscious meditation, the ripple effect of that psychic and emotional energy. There's been some fascinating studies to show how that can have an effect externally on the environment and the energetic vibration of the planet. And I mean, you notice that whenever we have perhaps a, a period of mourning and the energy, you can feel the energy of a city and a planet change. Right now, this week, yeah. Kobe, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a very different vibration in the city of Los Angeles. It's yeah. palpable. But on the other side of that coin, when people are clear mm. and aware and manifesting a very calm, peaceful, loving energy, that also can shift the vibration of an entire city or 
on the most macro level, the planet or the universe. So, Absolutely. And the to- opposite is true too. When we see tragedy hitting us, I mean, or like right now we have the, it's the coronavirus, is that what it's called? Correct. There's a cultural fear right now of, oh my gosh, there's there's mm, a really I wasn't bad yeah. health scare happening in China. Yeah. That And now it's like the US is on high alert at the moment. Mm. Is, are we going to be affected too? Sure. You know, sure. and we have these, these times culturally where there's a big fear and you can feel the tension, yes. yeah. right? And so, yeah, it is It is interesting how we do respond so much to one another for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a great opportunity, a reminder as we, as we wrap up the podcast to cultivate additional self-awareness, know thyself. And that through all of these yeah. wonderful experiences you've had, James, and you've shared today, all of the highs and the lows and everything in between, it's brought you to more of who you really are. And it's like, as you peel the layers of this onion back, my brother, it's like there's no end to it. Mm. And I just want to extend my appreciation for you just being so authentic and vulnerable and human here today, as always, every interaction we have, and just sharing a little bit of your heart and your light with uh, the listeners today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, guys. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be here. And it's just so neat for me on a personal level how 15 years ago we met. Wow. You know, and where our lives have gone and, and how we started off connecting over my old career path Mm. and then i started this new career path and here we are more connected than we were back then and it's it's fascinating and yeah i just feel in awe of it i'm also just in awe of the fact that that's where that tripod came from I remember buying this that is tripod so, I mean, for that's, that film shoot that I, mean, I met you yeah. on. Full circle, y'all. Full you know, circle. I mean, that's serendipity and synchronicity right there. And um, <laughs> Thank you, tripod. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. And it's really cool to continually experience each other in yeah. new light. You know, I know both of you have multiple gifts, and it's, I think it's been so cool to kind of meet at different stages of life and really kind of meeting each other there. And I can't wait to explore more of the side of the music side of you. I mean, well, both, I can't wait to come to one of your events. Are yeah. you kidding me? Oh, uh, yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. That's salivating. right. That's right. Yeah. And we want you to uh, share your gift. Yeah. Have I would you, love to uh, come as a feature performer. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to do that. That's right. Well, yeah. maybe that'll be recorded and posted somewhere in Wellevator. And speaking of which, if you, the dear listener, are interested in learning about anything we talked about today, including James, what do you think is the best way for someone to connect? Is it Instagram right now? Are you using other platforms? Yeah, yeah. Like where are you, on, where's your heart right now? Yeah, on, on uh, all social media, I'm just at my name, at James Kyson. And um, yeah, people could message me there. Like if somebody really wants to connect with you, would it be on a social media platform? Would it be in person? Are there, you know... What's yeah. the best way? I think, you know, depending on the world, you, I mean, social media is a good way to, um, you know, get in touch with me. I'm trying to think if I have some in-person appearances coming up. Yeah, I could definitely. Have, are they listed on your website? Do you have a newsletter? Yeah, I do have a website. It's just jameskyson.com. And sometimes I will have some appearances were public appearances and so that will be posted you know as it com- yeah. comes along well i think encouraging people to connect in person is always good so we'll make sure to link to that at wellevator.com that's w-e-l-l-e-v-a-t-r.com and we'll have links to the books that you mentioned and whatever clips else. from the tv series too <laughs> yeah. yeah oh See yeah james in made- action would I have your permission to post one of those old school photos from Disarmed? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I, I would love to see it because it's, <laughs> it's been so long. And I remember I had to play such a wacky character for that short film. I was like, you know, the best friend, and it was like such a weird story. Like, like, did he pretend he didn't have an arm? Yeah, Is that what it was? He pretended he didn't. He was like a disabled. <laughs> what a crazy! Oh, hence the name disarmed. Yes. You yeah, know what? yeah. Wait a second. It was but, um, so. Second. I don't oh, even know if I've ever even wait, seen wait, it. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Whitney's. I literally have it in this. I just got all my stuff from the yeah. storage unit. You have oh like a DVD god. of it? Oh my I god. Stop it. No, you a VHS. Oh no. my god. You are going to pull out a VHS <laughs> tape? That's so vintage that it's actually cool now. James, do you even have a VHS player? Uh, like, I, what, like if, if I, she busts I, out a VHS tape, yeah, yeah. how the hell are we even going to watch it? I don't. Yeah, you're right. And it's like it's like a record player, right? I, I think it's coming back. Like like it's like hot a, again, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like, like a cassette player? Like, if, yeah. you, if you literally have a VHS tape, we, that is we are crazy. going to have to find a way to play this. Oh my god! This is yeah, this. Is, yeah. I love that this is happening in real time. Like this is the nitty gritty of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Of literally, we're like, hey, we're gonna wrap up. Actually, we're not. We're gonna go on a treasure hunt. VHS. Oh my god! I remember growing up and watching all my basketball NBA videos on VHS. You know, all the Jordan videos, Dude. all the NBA superstars. By the way, is it is basketball a passion of yours? Because I didn't yeah, even I used know. To play high school and college. Wow, yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, that's when you said it. I was like, this needs to be a whole other podcast because wow. you and I could go on an hour long tangent about loving basketball. Oh my god, no, that was my game. I'm, I've been I've been a fan since I was ten years old, and I wow. just it, it's still a passion of mine. I yeah. go to Lakers yeah. games, and obviously, you know, we we brushed on Kobe, and that's been such a heavy, yeah, yeah. sad energy this week. Yeah, but I yeah. I love that game. Yeah. There's something about that game that. I don't know, it captured yeah. me as a little kid. And even now, I just, I watch games all the time. I, I have not let up 42 wow. now. So I've been, yeah, since 10 years old, man. Bro, we are, uh, so yeah, we, we should play. definitely, yeah, we, we should gotta play. We got to get together play. Because it's been so long since I've played and I've been really kind of almost like wanting, jonesing to be back in my life in that yeah, way. Yeah, me too. You know, because I, you know, I loved playing, you know, most above everything else. And then, you know, I, I watch games when it's like a really meaningful playoff game For or sure. NBA the NBA finals, finals, you know. Yeah. But I will say this about, you know, what's been going on with Kobe's passing. that It's been so encouraging and healing to see grown men, athletes, commentators, and professional men really share their emotions, you know, and on camera cry, and crying and being yes. willing to grieve and mourn and share their memories of Kobe. I don't know if we've, we would have seen that 20 years ago. I just feel like it's a, it's a reflection of the times and where we are as a society and how more open and vulnerable, especially men have become. Completely. And, and, you know, right now there's so much noise going on in the world and it's been a way for the world to kind of come together and connect. Yes and connect emotionally together and grieve together. And I think in some ways that's provided some healing. I think that's so well said. So well said. No. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Indeed. When you do find it. Yeah. Crazy. Well, I guess that means we are, we are going to officially wrap up then. I was like a different human being then, you know? It's, we all, I mean, 15 years ago, are you kidding me? You know, what's, what's so interesting thing about being an actor for me oh. is it, because, you know, these canons and archives and the stuff that you've done, they're all like miniature markers of that point in your life. And for me, that is one interesting thing to just watch old work and just like, oh my God, like that, that person in that time period and just remembering like who that person was. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, every year feels different for me, you know, but like definitely different chapters of my life. It's, it's just really interesting to go back and see some of those things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
I'm so I'm so happy to yeah. be reunited with both of you. Yeah. Feeling is mutual, brother. Yeah. More to come. More yeah. beautiful creativity to come. Yeah. All right. Until next Absolutely. time. Thanks for being here. Yes. Thank you. Much love. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.